0: hello everybody and welcome to mrs. G's story time we are reading Harold Sanjin by Patricia Sanjin with permission of 10 of those publishing company just want to have thank you so much for being patient with us we weren't able to get those recordings out on Thursday and Friday but they will coming they'll be coming out on uh, Monday and Tuesday but we are reading chapter 11 and this is part two. There is no man in this building who gives more reverence, more honor, more love to this book than I. But I'm sure that even in the use of it, there's a danger lest we should stop short of reaching the one to whom this book bears witness. If your mind's been merely engaged with text, or you've merely been considering passages out of the Bible, you've lacked something. You haven't gone all the way, for all the way is this, That the Lord Jesus Christ should present himself to you as the only safe guide on the dangerous road of life, and the only way by which you can keep your pathways shining. That is, that the face of Christ shall shine upon you, and you should behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. The Word, yes, but not the Word only. Always the Word with the Spirit. There are scholars who have devoted 40 years to the most painstaking study of every proposition and word in the Old Testament. But some of them are still a million leagues away from Christ. But remember, this is the problem. How can youth keep its way shining through a dark world? How can you reach the goal? Christ. By taking heed thereto, by stepping carefully and guiding your life by what your soul is learning of God in the text of the Holy Scriptures, and by keeping company with Christ as your best friend, never ceasing until you are on such terms with him that you talk to him more intimately than to wife or child, lover or friend, and he talks with you. This does not only mean you have a Bible in your pocket, thank God if you do, but it means that you have Christ in your heart. Secondly, Harold Sangen never considered any study really worthwhile unless it affected one's daily conduct in a practical way. He insisted on this in particular when he studied the prophetic books, where a student may become sidetracked in the pursuit of dispensational truth, while neglectful of any immediate practical value. In a series of lectures on the Revelation, he emphasized this strongly. I think this has been a great mistake in the study of dispensational truth. People have taken a passage and found sometimes with a great deal of ingenuity that they can fit it into the future, and they are enormously pleased with the discovery, but it but that never finishes the thing unless you read it again and say, Lord, what has this got to do with me today? The dispensational interpretation of a passage is never its final meaning. The final meaning is always in the court of the conscience. A dispensation is temporal. But you must find the eternal meaning. How does this fit into the realm of the soul? How does it answer some need of the heart? For God never places any event in the future without anything that saints can enjoy today. To every saint today, if only he has insight and spirituality enough to receive it, God says, You can by faith have everything now that I'm going to give to my saints in the future. There's not a single blessing in the millennial that you cannot enjoy by faith today. And how he strove to impress upon the assemblies where he visited the need of systematic Bible teaching, book by book, chapter by chapter, and how he moaned the dying out of this practice in many circles. We are not doing it as our fathers used to do, he said, in an urgent appeal towards the end of his life. I remember in my youth how the late William Kelly used to come up to the London and deliver his annual series of lectures. He would take perhaps seven lectures on Isaiah, on the captivity books, and each year he would lecture on some broad portion of scripture. He spent months preparing his lectures, and there would be lines outside the largest hall they could get, and the good man would speak in a very studied, cultured English for over an hour, simply opening up the word of God. I spoke to some young people in a meeting to which I had came not long ago because I wanted to know what line to take. And I said, when did you last have a series of lectures on the epistles to the Romans? They looked surprised and said, we've never had such a thing. And I said, when did you last have a series of lectures on the Messianic Psalms or the Song of Solomon? And they said, we've never heard of such a thing. I shook my head at those elders and wondered what they'd been up to, not feeding the flock properly. Now we understand that the first thing for which an assembly of God stands is that it is a place where the scriptures are interpreted by as God gave them, that is, by chapters, by books, by sections, not by text preaching. I do not object to text preaching. I am only saying it's not the way that God gave scripture. He gave it in big masses, not in text. And I would say with great deference to my elders, I beseech you that you be exercised that you feed the flock of God. On your bookshelves, you have books of lectures delivered by God's servants 40 years ago. But what is in the use of them if you are not having any lectures? And the first thing to expect of an assembly is that it is to be a place for the exposition of the word, to declare unto us the parable. Open the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, section by section, till our youth is grounded and settled in the word of God as he gave it. He himself loved to give a series of lectures on some book or topic, and there were certain churches who felt that their spiritual growth was partly due to these lectures. His lectures on church life in Wellington, New Zealand, and his annual Bible studies at South Park Chapel on Seven Kings certainly had a profound influence on his hearers. One who heard him year by year at South Park wrote, He loved to guide his hearers into an intensive study of the books of the Bible. He has given as many as 16 addresses in a month when expounding some book of the scriptures, and a careful check of available local records reveals that since the year 1910, most of the books of the Bible received detailed attention. He sought to inspire every earnest young Christian with an ideal of finding Christ in the scriptures through painstaking sanctified study, for he considered it an integral part of the Christian life. He once visited a young Christian university student and examined with pleasure a score of neat notebooks representing months of research in science. After careful examination of these volumes, Mr. Sanjin said, Now show me your Bible study books. To which the young man replied with some embarrassment, I haven't any, sir, but indeed I shouldn't know how to treat the Bible that way. The incident stirred Mr. Sanjin deeply. Here, as he pointed out, was a young man able to give Hours daily to meticulous, accurate study, yet only occasionally flinging a few flag ends of time to the profoundest subject that can engage the human mind. The study of the book so marvelous that it cost the death of Christ to make its production possible, so powerful that by it alone we can keep ourselves from the power of the destroyer. In order to help those who wanted to embark on the adventure of Bible study, he twice at least gave examples of his own method of study, taking the two epistles, Ephesians and Philemon. When asked as to commentaries and helps to Bible studies, he wrote the following answer. A man deals with scripture as a conscience, which needs to be trained, a heart, which must be warmed, and a will that should be yielded, and finally, a mind, which must be fed." For the conscience, none is better than Alexander White. His Lord, teach us to pray, and with mercy and with judgment will make his readers hot and ashamed. For the heart, Rutherford's letters, not his sermons, and Belize Pascal's thoughts are invaluable. For the education of the will, the confession of St. Augustine, and John Bunyan's grace abounding are simply unpriced. For the more routine departments of the brain, i like to have within reach Dr. Orr's invaluable five volumes of International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the three volumes of Englishman Greek and Hebrew Concordance, Andrew Jute's Types of Genesis, a Model of Mystical Interpretation, Waters to Swim in, Not for Paddlers, Westcott on Joy, John, Westcott on Hebrews, but if his Greek hinders, then Davison's Small Handbook on Hebrews is Most Thoughtful. For the Acts, Rackham in the Westminster Commentary is excellent and full. And if Stifler's Acts of the Apostles is obtainable, it will well repay reading several times. The best general commentary is the Speakers. It is old, but very reliable and scholarly. It may be picked up second-hand. When asked at the end of his life about the dates of the Epistles, he scribbled his own thoughts on the subject from memory and pencil. But added at the bottom of the list. Several are only approximate, up to fluctuations of two to three years. It matters little, as you simply shift all the figures. Bruce is best, and Rackham gets tied up with many monks. Stick to Freddy. From the first glow of conversion to almost the last day of life, he never lost his appetite for the study of the Bible. When he could no longer pass on the findings in public addresses, he said quietly, leaning back in bed with the worn old book in his hands. It is no longer seed for the sower, but it's wonderful bread for the eater. And it was this bread that molded his thoughts and character and made him what he was. He once characterized the direct results of Bible study as follows. The mental horizon widens. It is impossible to live in an intellectual prison if we are in constant contact with this unique library in which the world's finest poetry deepest philosophy, and noblest literature abound. In scripture alone do we discover a lucid, trustworthy account of earth's origin and our own descent, a history of our race, written from the standpoint of its creator, a final interpretation of the meaning and glory of life, and above all, a light, whose rays illumine the far-flung future, enabling us to peer down into the lake of fire, as well as to look upwards and count the towers of the city of God. In a sentence, no man can really be called well-educated if he does not know his Bible, nor badly educated if he does. The manners are refined. To breathe the pure air of holy writ, to keep company with the holiest and highest of our race, necessarily softens our natural roughness, and we insensibly adopt the court manners of heaven. Some years ago I listened to a brother who, while preaching so far, forgot himself as to refer to a fellow servant of Christ in a disparaging way. Later, as we walked home together, I sensed he was uncomfortable, but I said nothing, until he asked me outright what I thought of his performance. Well, I replied, I thought you'd been neglecting Paul's epistles lately. What do you mean, he said. I answered, I don't think that one can be much in the company of such an exquisitely courteous gentleman as the Apostle Paul without learning not to criticize one's fellow Christians. Bible study feeds and fortifies the faith, thus making it sane and robust. We live in a time when fresh, fancy religions flourish like poison fungi. These systems owe their success to the fact that Christians do not know their Bibles and are easily caught up in the toils. It is the absence of fixed beliefs and spiritual landmarks that make men an easy prey to error. But after all, Scripture is only a road. The home of the heart is God, known and loved as Christ knew and loved him. If we follow the light, it will lead us to our resting place, which perhaps we had forgotten in Jeremiah 50, verse 6. And here is the glory of Bible study, that if we learn God's will and then do it, we shall grow like God. But its peril is that we rest content with the knowledge of the text and go no further, like travelers who sit down in the road and imagine they have reached the king's palace. The Bible became the atmosphere in which he lived and breathed, nor had any other atmosphere to recommend to those who wanted to grow in grace. I I shall always remember the gratitude your indulgent love to me as a newborn babe in Christ, wrote a young architect. I shall never forget your last advice as we parted at the head of the main stairs that Easter, never to neglect the daily reading of the scriptures and to take time to meditate upon some portion. And Mr. Eric Huntington, the well-known evangelist, wrote the following testimony, Mr. Harold Sandin has been one of the greatest spiritual influences in my life. It was he above all others who inspired me to get down to a detailed study of the Bible as the Word of God to seek the plain and obvious meanings of the words rather than to attempt to see typical meanings, sometimes of and remote in everything. By this sane, powerful approach, the true topical teaching of Scripture emerged. In other words, he taught me that it was necessary to go to the Scriptures first and let the Word of God unfold itself rather than get hold of some dispensational or topical outline and force the interpretation of such meaning He stayed with us in Manchester many times during the years 1935 to 1945, and even when he was not staying with us, we would lunch together once or twice a week to discuss the things of God. My last meeting with him was typical. He boarded the train at Crewe at the time when Billy Graham crusades were on and came into the compartment where I was. He talked of the evident working of God through Billy Graham and his true Catholicity of spirit, and burden that all should have the word of God was once again glowing evident. It was the last time I saw him; his face radiant with the glory of God. And next time we will be reading chapter twelve, the man. I hope that again, I hope that you're enjoying this as much as I am. It has really been a blessing and a, a pricking of the heart as well, too, and and a reminder of many things that to draw our hearts nearer to God and. And to learn to love as he loves us. And I love you. I'm praying for you. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.